Welcome to Inside Whitehall with me, James Starkey. And me, Jonathan Gullis. Well, we've just had Mark Fletcher and Alex on the show. Fantastic to have had them on and to hear what is a PPS. We've always joked about the uh, the, the real Malcolm Tuckers of the Spads, but actually, is the real power behind the throne the PPS based on what we were learning? What do you think, James? Well, the simple answer to that, Jonathan, is no, because I think Mark said himself how important special advisors were. I mean, I don't know how much you gave Mark for that answer, and, I, <laughs> and I, hopefully he declares it, because it's going to certainly be over that limit. But um, on, on, look, on a serious note, I think you mentioned it, because we've spoke about it before. I certainly think that, and whenever I speak to people who are still you know, current special advisors, I think I encourage a good relationship with the PPS. I should have had a better one. One of the things we talked about, both for Alex and Mark is they've got a really good understanding or you when you're doing the that job you've got a very good understanding of the mood of the house where the issues are so to me that's a kind of that's an early warning system because if MPs are starting to get upset about an issue well if I'm a special I was a media special advisor for most of the time the chances are that's going to end up in the paper in 3 4 weeks time so it's really I think there was there was that real understanding of the mood of the back of the back benches, which I thought was interesting. No, it's fascinating because in some debates, for example, there may be some contentious issues that, you know, an MP is being encouraged by PPSs to be in, maybe an opposition day debate. Uh, there was one I took part in around free school meals, but there wasn't many Conservative MPs who wanted to get into that debate because they're worried about, will there be something I say that's going to be put in a clip that will be used against me at election time, will be uh, used on the media? There's obviously as well, for the opposition, you know, you're, they'll be worried about maybe certain colleagues and thinking, do we want them to be the face of this debate? Will the media, they'll be the ones the media will want to clip? Or the opposition party, will, or, you know, the Conservatives will want to use as well. So I think there's that real fine balance about how you encourage colleagues and maybe try and discourage others and obviously get them to stick to script as best as you can do. I know one of the things that I found interesting with the mood, as you mentioned, is Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, as leader of the House, when we were all first elected, invited MPs, newly elected, from across all parties in small groups of four or five. So I was there with Dave Dugan, SMP, alongside James Daly, if I remember correctly as well, a Conservative MP for uh, Berry North. And we were sitting and talking and he was kind of just trying to give us like a guide of how the house works, a bit of Erskine May, because you know he loves it. But his most interesting point that stuck with me forever is the mood of the house is something that at your own peril, you choose to go again. So if it is a very calm, collegiate well, uh, atmosphere... What do you mean by the mood of the house? So, so when I talking the, about being yeah, yeah, in the chamber. So I'm talking about the type of debate. So, for example, if there's a debate where everyone's getting on and everyone's kind of basically agreeing, a lot of what happens in Westminster Hall that maybe is televised but people don't necessarily watch, if you decide to go in with some bombastic, very partisan speech, colleagues from your own side will be annoyed as much as the opposition benches. And you suddenly feel that you've changed the tone. And you can see it in certain speeches. You know, there's times when it's all calming down. And normally ministers and shadow ministers like it when it's calming down as they get down the pecking order towards when they respond to the debate. Because ultimately, they're the ones who want to get the big hits. But sometimes, it just takes one individual to go in there. I'm sure I've been guilty of it. And, uh, you know, I can think of opposition colleagues who will be guilty of it as well. And one person sparks it, and then everyone, everyone's then in that changes their mindset and goes, right, we're going to have a bit of back and forth. And you can suddenly feel as it's going to the minister's response. throwing a grenade in. Throwing a grenade in. Honestly, it's like you can see it with the minister's response because suddenly the shadow minister and the minister, maybe who have only had one intervention as they're summing up, now is getting 10 plus because everyone's trying to make their party political point. And I think, you know, that's therefore a frustration for the PPS because that's now a danger system because they're now trying to 
they got the whips on their case saying, we want this debate over, get your minister to sit down. You've got colleagues going, I want to get in, I want to get in and make this point. And of course, you've got, you know, you're very aware that you've uh, got the opposition who are starting to maybe, you know, in a debate which was non-contentious uh, is now going to become contentious and that's going to have an impact on the department whether that be through comms, whether that be through policy or amendments and so forth. So I think that was really interesting for me. In terms of, I think what was also interesting with the, the mood, as I say, it's like a sort of a wave, really. You, I don't know, James, have you ever sat in the box inside the house? Were you ever in the box, as it's called, right yeah, by the speaker's chair? Did you ever feel that mood? Did you ever feel like a, could you, did you ever feel an atmosphere that made you sort of feel, oh, this is going well, this isn't going well, or this is a bit spicy, or this is, a, you know, quite dull? Not really. I think the most of the time I did that was with Michael. And I think, I'm, you know, I'm biased, but I think Michael is a particularly good parliamentarian, ju judging what's going on as well when he's here in the dispatch box. I mean, one of the things I found very interesting about this is because we, we've talked so much about obviously what's going on in the chamber. You know, as Mark touched upon in the episode, as a special advisor, you're mostly back at the department. Your mind's on like the papers and, you know, what Downing Street haven't or haven't agreed to or the Treasury are trying to block something. Submissions come in. And you kind of do, I think, you kind of leave. There's, you know, often in the special advisor team, there is a specific special advisor who's tasked with dealing with the parliamentary liaison. Uh, I never did that role. And that's the kind of thing you leave to them and the PPSs. I mean, the thing that I was always looking for, it's the same as when I, I would sit in the office and watch the oral questions for the department that I was in, is all I'm looking for is, is there a media line that's going to cause me a problem, to be I totally think, honest. No, totally. And I think actually the oral question is something we, we didn't get to go on to uh, because of time. But actually what I learned as a PPS is how important you are in preparing for oral questions. As I said, once you get the list from the table office of who's been drawn in the lottery to ask those questions, your job is, number one, to go out to all those MPs from across the house and say, this is the question you've submitted. You'll get a supplementary, a follow-up. Do you know want to share what that is? Now, of course, that's done because that gives the civil service and the minister time to research it, to look into it, and therefore give a good answer, but also an answer that will cause favour them and their position. So it's very rare you get the opposition. But let's flip it around because you, you, you've, you've been on both sides of that. You've been a PPS, so you've been going up to colleagues saying... Oh, you know, what, what, you know, what's what, your backup? What's your follow up? What's yeah. your follow up? The most but embarrassing also... one today was I was at a PPS office in Northern Ireland and going to Theresa Villiers, who's a former Secretary of State <laughs> in Northern Ireland, and going, Oh, do you mind? I know this is really <laughs> cheeky. Do you mind giving my follow up? And Theresa was lovely and gave it, but of course was a bit like, I don't, I don't have to, mate. <laughs> and there's, there's definitely a challenge for the new intake. A lot of the older intake were very much like, I'm a senior elder, grandee, whatever it is. Mm. I'm a former minister in that department. I don't need to tell you. And your minister should be up to brief enough that I can ask them anything at any time and they should be able to answer it. And that is, that's like, so yeah, I know people have gone up to like Theresa May and asked her like, oh, do you have a supplementary? And I think- What, I think, would, what I, would Theresa I, May's answer be? I don't think it was, I don't think they got the response <laughs> they were hoping for. But what, so what, how do you feel when someone comes up to you and says, could you ask this or whatever? Do, is that, does that bother you? I suppose I'm- I've probably gone through the the ecological stage of like now, like I'm some grumpy, like I don't need to, I don't need to tell you. Uh, <laughs> do you not think I, I am sympathetic? Think, I am oh, joking. I, used to do I, that job. I am, I am sympathetic to it because, of course, I understand. I like to, I like to think at the very least, I either go with a no, I'm, I'm really sorry, or I'm busy. Legitimately, I've got something in the diary. I can't be there for that debate. But I will go like, oh, but 
can I come and do an intervention? I've got maybe half an hour, I'll intervene and, and can be helpful that way, either on the opposition shadow minister or on the government minister with a point that wants to be hammered home. So I think there's that, that, you know, you can be fair. One of the things that I was taught as a PPS um, was, obviously colleagues now have the online system where they can submit their questions. And there's still the paper version where you get the colleague to sign, right, put their details at the top, what's their question, and then sign it. Did the online version come in because of COVID? Uh, I think it was there already before I came in. Okay. I think it was just an evolution of speeding up responses with the table office and making life easier. Westminster 2.0. Exactly. But uh, <laughs> modernising. Jacob, perhaps Jacob Rees-Mogg maybe <laughs> wants to do a point of order about this modernisation. <laughs> Back to vellum. Exactly. So so I remember still, though, being told, like, in the voting lobbies, have your list of questions, have the questions already printed out, have a top sheet with them 1 to 10, and say to someone, which one of these 10? You pull out the sheet... You would scribble their name on for them to make it as light work as possible. You scribble on their constituency and you just go, all I now need is you to sign that piece of paper. And actually, to be fair, in Northern Ireland, which I was in, which is not a department that sadly would get, you know, easily 100 plus colleagues submit a question like Treasury or Home Affairs would, or the Home Office would, that was actually critical to making sure that we had the numbers to have more in the in the ballot than the opposition, which meant that we were more than likely going to have more Conservatives pulled out of the hat because if you're in there more, you've got more chance of being pulled. So that was really, really important. Of course, the one that no one ever has to ask for is, are you going to submit one for PMQs? There was a lot of jealousy at one stage. I remember Rob Butler, bless him, like, I think... It was extraordinary. I think he had 13 PMQs. What? And there's some, like, he's just getting drawn out of the ballot. And so, like, the running joke amongst the the 109, as it's known, the, the 2019 is in the Conservative Party, was, um, oh, uh, is it, it's basically like, a, a, a you know, coffee with coffee with Rob at, you know, 12 o'clock on a Wednesday, uh, you know, a, a Boris and Rob chat uh, mm. kind of situation. But, and I, because I remember some colleagues going, I've, I've been in the house like 15 years. I've only had two. Yeah. drawn out i think i've had but i think i've been drawn twice okay i've been called on the bob i think twice and rob's had 13 so i'm everyone then gets what it was what's hilarious is everyone's like there must be a secret yeah what are you doing is that no the speaker and the whips the speaker literally goes out of his way to say there is no magic formula it's just the way the cookie crumbles everyone's like no there's something do they just draw it out of a hat or something it's literally just spits out so yeah you just go in and they spit out names out of a system it's literally random one of the things that was touched upon in there is that PPSs are, are part of payroll yeah and I think I thought that look one of the things we want to dissect is, is terminology that's commonly used yeah uh, and just understanding exactly what that means so payroll would imply you're paid and I think we touched upon it in the episode PPSs are not paid, are not paid <laughs> right not paid. So you're paid down to parliamentary undersecretary as the most junior ministerial position you could be paid for, I think. Yeah, parliamentary undersecretary, minister of state, secretary of state. Secretary of state. So in crude terms, payroll is as simple as if you are considered part of payroll, then you are always just guaranteed you're, you're voting with the government because if you're not, you're resigning. Yeah, basically. So the idea is that because you are bound by a certain level of collective responsibility, and it is a, a position appointed by the leader of a party. Therefore, yes, you and you're being rewarded in essence. And look, there are also some people who get these jobs to shut them up. Let's not pretend like that doesn't happen. Jobs are given out in that case to make people who could be a problem with certain amendments and votes mm. or just. Are talk you thinking of any much. particular current ministers of this government? <laughs> there's going to be no comment there, James. No <laughs> comment there, James. But, you know, there's, I think that type of, you know. Uh, Separately, thing, what do you think of the 0.7% no, on aid? <laughs> If we're moving on. So I think that the, 
<laughs> so I think, uh, you know, for me, yes, your payroll and you're told, look, this is the first rung that everyone or nearly everyone goes through. This is your training ground. Do a decent job. And by the way, the Secretary of State or your minister is regularly feeding into the whip, um, the chief whip in most cases, What's that person like? How good are they at their job? Like, how do you find dealing with them? The department whip will also be feeding into the chief whip. So when it comes to reshuffle time, all that information is collated and they will go, is there someone in here who rallies colleagues in a positive way, is across the detail and able to answer questions? And there's lots of WhatsApp groups for each department. And I used to be amazed, to be fair. Mark was excellent, genuinely excellent when Bay's questions, how quickly he responded, rather than doing what some others did, which is, Oh, I'll ask Spads and get back to you. Mark had digested that much information. Mm. He was giving the answers. Well, he was saying that it seems like when he was in there for, you know, ministerial questions or whatever, he would basically be sitting there reading the entire brief. Yeah. And I think that was important to do. You're reading the brief, you're reading the questions. And then that way, then when you're doing the prep with your minister or the Secretary of State for departmental questions, I would, again, depending on who the minister or Secretary of State was, I know with Brandon, who was my Brandon Lewis, he would ask, like, what do you think of that answer? Like, how could it be improved? And Or I would simply go, oh, there's this information on page five that could beef up that answer a bit. And Brandon would go, oh, yeah, like, that would be good. Because you want to give colleagues a decent answer. And actually what was always interesting is if an opposition MP did ever give a member of the, uh, you know, a member of the government their question of answer, that normally happens if it's a very sensitive uh, local issue that they obviously want, they need a good answer on. Or sometimes it's because they it's a local issue they really care about. It's a campaign issue of theirs, and they mm. want a decent, detailed response rather than just a reaction to. I'll not, get back to you. I'll get back to you. And so they would come. So I remember, and they won't mind me saying, like there was one about Northern Ireland veterans. We know Dan Jarvis is a, a former veteran himself. You know, someone who's very passionate and a Labour MP. On those questions, he would share in advance because obviously operationally there were sensitive material in there, certain names that. And, he would check, like, oh, is that okay, blah, blah, blah. So, because to not make, not to make the minister feel uncomfortable or even put the minister in a difficult spot when unintentionally. On a sensitive issue. On a sensitive issue. So, I think, like, you know, and so then we would go out of our way to give Dan the best response we could give because he was being fair to us. Of course, vice versa, mm. you're fair back to them. And if that was ever broken, if that wasn't reciprocated, that trust is gone. The opposition benches will see that and then they will never, never consider giving you a question. So, it's mm. really, really important that you build that trust as well with your opposition. And in Northern Ireland, I was talking to SDLP, DUP, because, you know, very different alliance party and trying to build some relationship with them that at least if they weren't going to give me the full question, I had an idea of the theme they were going to go on. So at least we had an idea of where they might be travelling with it. The way it was being described, it seemed to me like a really great job to have when you're first an MP. Because yeah. it get you have to get to know your colleagues, which so, you know... the, the some 19- are better than others. But it also, I can see, so for an MP, it seems like if I was a new MP, to me, that seems like actually, before I'd think, that's quite a lot of hassle. I have to tow the government line. I don't get any money for it. I've got my constituency. What I'm going to become an MP. But listening to Alex and Mark, I would now think to myself, this is a great way for me to get to really know a, a department and then also get to know all my colleagues. But when I think of it as a Secretary of State, I would think, it'd be great to have someone who's been around for five, seven years because they already know all this stuff. And when I lean back and say, is, you know, which constituency is that person or are they, as we touched upon, are they right honourable? 
they would they would admit probably immediately know the answer. And they would also the big thing is they would just have a feel for the issues. They'd say, well, so and so is really going to care about this. I think it's very fair to say that prior to the 2019 intake being elected in the Conservative Party, which is roughly now a third of the parliamentary party. Yes, you would have probably done two, three years at best before even getting a PPS job. Okay. I think Priti Patel said she had done four years. Yeah, I think she um, did. So before she got her first PPS gig. So I know that there was definitely some feathers ruffled when 2019ers were very quickly, within, a, within I think, less than a year, were getting positions as a PPS. It was seen as like, this is incredibly quick. But of course, the parliamentary party was also very different. A third of the party now made up of newly elected MPs from a very different... Uh, base compared to their you know other colleagues and the government needed to accurately reflect the views the opinions and the voices it's a party that's been in government for a long time you, you can't ask ian duncan smith to be a pps no exactly it's not going to happen so you need to have that balance so there's I, a group of people that couldn't really be pps exactly too senior in the party exactly and so i think that's really so i think that's the challenge and i would i was definitely one of those and there are current pps's who have told me i won't name them but said to me i'll never accept a pps job i was one of those who went why would I go and sit behind and just be a bag carrier and a, a you know paperclip holder and not get paid and have to sit in sometimes the you know uh, the Commons Chamber for four or five hours and not have meetings and not be able to do my paperwork or etc. You know why would I do that? And actually, I look back and I learned so much. I was very lucky. I had Baroness Evans and the leader of the House, uh, leader of the House of Lords at the time, one of the most incredible minds I've ever come across. Her breadth of knowledge on policy and, of course, in the Lords. You're scrutinising policy, but also you're working with a... You know that, weirdly, even though you're the party of government, you're actually... If Labour and Lib Dems decide to join up, you've lost the vote. So you're just trying not to lose badly. Well, I've never asked you this. When you're a PBS for the Lords, yeah. is your job to deal with MPs still? Or is your... Who's, you're not dealing with lords. So again, it again it depends on the role. You're, I was and who you're sort of working with. I remember rocking up to my first meeting, and in that case, it was the leader of the lords, the deputy leader of the lords, the chief whip, the deputy chief whip, and then the other whips in the lords or conservative peers. And I remember coming along with this printed off, like two sided A4 document that I spent ages designing with here's the legislative program, here's the things, and I remember giving it to them. Uh, to the the noble lords, and they were like, "Yeah, mate, we we know policy. Like, I don't need like I can find that easily. What's the gossip? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> who's who's having did? Who's besties with who? Like, what's the red wall? I remember like giving a lecture about what the red wall really? is. There is a famous. There's a there's a there's a. Did M they say? Oh, it's sound. You know, isn't a, the red wall at the thing at the end of my country estate? There's an M, <laughs> there's an MP who I'm gonna keep nameless, but I was told by someone in the lords would rock up when they were a PPS to leave the Lords and read out playbook. And, really? and read out the playbook gossip to the Lords and just talk about, yeah, that's a bit true, that's not, like, oh, that's interesting. Well, we can talk about it because neither of us have ever seen it, I think. But this sounds like you must have read about the note that goes from one of the whips to the monarch, I think, each week. Yes, yeah, so they, the week... Which the, apparently, according to the... I said this is only according to the newspapers, is just the kind of gossip in Parliament that's not written in the newspapers. I think, so we've been told when we've spoken to that, that whip in that position that there is Because like there's a, a whip in the whip's office, which is not necessarily the chief, right? Who's designated... No, no, they, they've got a special title. And their job is to be the link between the monarch and Parliament and their the job is state. to write a summary of what's going on. Um, I'm sure there's probably some gossip. We've never, I've never been privileged to see it. All I know is that her, so late, Majesty, her, late, <laughs> her late Majesty, um, Queen Elizabeth apparently was like on it so like when that whip would then go and physically see her late majesty Do they get to meet the monarch they go to they sometimes go and give a verbal feedback and oh. she had read their notes and she would grill them so like don't be 
bluffing away or thinking, mm. oh, I've just got to quickly write down five lines, it won't be read. It's not, it's not A-level homework. Brilliant. No, and that's also the whip that tends to be held hostage at the state opening of Parliament. Oh, right. So that's the one that gets to go to Buckingham Palace. Now, when I say held hostage, I'm led to believe now it's <laughs> afternoon tea uh, yeah. in a nice cosy room, not literally held a you know, uh, sword. No. Um, but of course, until the monarch, until now His Majesty returns uh, to Buckingham Palace, that whip will be kept in that building in case we ever have to do a trade-off. Yeah. Uh, so you know it's quite That's quite the thought but now it's hilarious because there is now uh, whips are desperate to be the hostage right really? if you're the whip everyone wants just to be the so hostage. they get to go to so they get to go to Buckingham Palace have a nice afternoon tea be looked after and normally the monarch pops in and says oh thanks for really sitting around so everyone's like it's a great moment so there is now a fight to be a hostage oh so you know so if if the if the palace is listening I'm more than happy to you know but you, sacrifice you, myself you have to be a whip uh, normally, yeah. Normally, it's one of the whips' office, yeah. So you probably. You're but I'm just saying, that. if they want to, you know, if they want to know about the red wall. Well, the big question that you would need to find out is, you'd have to. They bring your afternoon tea in. They place the china in front of you. Is it from Stoke on Trent? They're looking at you in their fine regal robes or whatever it is they wear, as you slowly. If I turned it, as over. Michael would Michael do this? Would Michael, Michael? We know Michael's checked the. We know Michael's checked the china in the cabinet every cabinet room. meeting now. Yeah. Which is past the test. It's if, I think... I, if I if I turned, I mean, what I don't know is what would happen if I turned that pottery over and it wasn't from Stoke on Trent. Like, what's the what would what... you do? <sighs> I think it'd be well, it'd be. I probably I don't want to be. I've got to be careful. I say here, it could be treasonous. <laughs> I think, so... I think you're I'd be very upset. Really dangerous ground. <laughs> I know. I think what will happen is a a a letter with suggestion of some fantastic suppliers across Stoke on Trent. And suggest that you know if uh, if His Majesty needs an updated tea set, then there's ample ample providers locally who will be. I can only imagine that the head of state, the monarch of this country, tunes into the pot. No, would of course, <laughs> would of course be choosing pottery from where from its home. Look, we we know that we actually know that the famous uh, scene where Her Late Majesty was with Paddington the Bear, that tea set was Stoke on Trent. Is that, that real? That's a Stoke on Trent tea set. So. The monarchy the are very sound when it comes to ceramics and Stoke on Trent. The past. I think uh, I, <laughs> I love how we've digressed here, <laughs> but like I think the uh, I think going back to figure PPS, I think that the other challenge I think is is time, and I think what was most interesting, I think what puts colleagues off is, you know, if you have a department urgent question, a statement, a debate on a Thursday. Nowadays, we know most MPs are here Monday to Wednesday. If you're in a marginal seat. You want to go Wednesday nights and be back in your patch. Mm. There's real discussion. That's why Mark was saying he would step in. There's a lot of conversation sometimes about, I need to be back. So M Mark's currently the PPS of the Chancellor. So Mark is currently the... Uh, that's going to be a busy gig. Very busy gig. So Mark's got a balance between being in the Treasury and see what's going on, being a voice for the backbenchers, the people they refer to as their real bosses. But actually, I... I hadn't thought of it like that, but I think that's a very fair... It's a nice way of putting it. I think it's a nice way of putting it because I think that that's also, by the way, like... That's it's such an important thing of that team. How do you build a relationship? Well, actually, the PPS has that role. But then Mark's got to go back and he's got to do constituency-related stuff. And actually being in Treasury now as well, that difficulty of he'll want to lobby for investment in his area and getting the right lines right. And I'm sure he'll have to go through different things. I know with Northern Ireland, I had to go through a certain set of security forms that other PPSs didn't. Really? Because obviously I would potentially be around certain levels of sensitive information, mm. potentially security stuff. Mark, I'm sure, will have to have 
uh, additional security and checks because he'll be one have a pass that lets him go into Downing Street without having to go through all the security. Mm. Of course, he'll also then have information in front of him that's extremely market sensitive. Of course. So I, uh, you know, it's, it's it's a lot of responsibility, and you know, not a thing that you can just carry papers around and mm. God forbid you leave them in the chamber or you leave on them somewhere the train. or on the train. So I think it's. Uh, there's a real trust, massive trust, and I suppose. Well, Michael talked about that. Right? Michael's reflected on a couple of his PPSs, which he said didn't you know didn't necessarily always align with him politically, but they were really valuable sources of advice, information, someone to as as you were just touching on then. Crucially, someone he felt he could trust, he could have a conversation with. Yeah, I think for me, like for example, Brandon. Why I thought Brandon was so good to work under was he's been around a long time. He'd been a minister quite early in his parliamentary career and served in a variety of different forms all the way up to chairman of the Conservative Party and dealing with a confidence vote under Theresa May. Mm. So obviously being Lord Lord Chancellor uh, under Liz Truss's government and obviously was Northern Iron Secretary under Boris Johnson. And to to have that depth of experience and um, you know, it's quite well known. I'm someone who can get excitable. I'm someone who can, you know, want to as... as uh, uh, Alex was even kindly saying, you know, can't, can't, you know, can't not hear what I've got to say. Whether you want to is another question. And actually learning from Brandon about, it's fine to be passionate about stuff, but you've also got to sometimes bring colleagues along with you and that style matters as much as content. Mm. And learning about how to deal with civil servants. And Brandon using that as a training ground of if you ever get into government, watching, for example, Brandon hold someone accountable in the civil service in the way that you would, you know, was firm but fair and obviously like probing and sometimes allowing, you know, but also then using the spads and then using me to sort of chase things up and to get answers to questions. It was such a learning opportunity. I think for anyone who's serious about being one day a shadow minister or in the government, it's a great training ground because you're, you're effectively in, you're a whip in some cases, you're, you know, plethora of information on the, on the, of what's going on in department, but also about your colleagues and of course your, um, learning to provide our advice you're trying to learn how to give quick answers to, to challenging questions and i think that's so important so yeah i think it's i think anyone would be crazy to not want to do that job if mm. they're serious about ever wanting to one day be at the cabinet table but of course sometimes decide people decide they can't do the job anymore because yeah. as we discussed this payroll i think mark resigned as well didn't he under bonus mark did resign yeah so you both but let's talk about you you took the decision to resign that in that situation, that's because you don't, you just feel you can't support, carry on supporting the government. Yeah, it was look, it was a really challenging moment. And I suppose it's the first time it became real about being payroll mm. because it was a very sensitive time for the party. You're aware that resigning as a PPS, even though we would joke it's a non job in some essence, and a lot of people will be like, what is a PPS? You're aware that it's because it's someone who's on payroll and you are having to resign, that isn't going to be newsworthy. So whether you want to be or not, you're going to be in a newspaper, maybe on the front page, maybe on page 25, but somewhere your name's going to be out there. The chief whip is going to look you in the eyes as you hand them over a letter. You're going to have to have the belief in your conviction. Did you hand it personally? I handed it into the chief whip's office. The chief whip wasn't at the time in there, but mm. I handed the chief whip's office um, and I privately text individuals the screenshot of the letter saying what I was doing but I gave the physical letter into the chief whip's office and it's that moment I remember going onto the terrace just to get some fresh air because I felt it and then thinking it's, it's done and then slowly surely started noticing what was a very busy night on the terrace because at that time two quite senior people in government had resigned under Boris as well Rishi and Sajid Rishi and Sajid that 
people's heads. Sky News are now breaking about who's going, and suddenly heads turning and nearly all eyes at one stage on me. Oh, really? Because obviously the phone's pinging off that another resignation's happened. And I remember just wanting to get out that building as quick as possible, got to my hotel room, put my phone on silent, and just really sat in a dark room and watched and and just I think watched like some junk film on film four, whatever the you know, mm. whatever was on other channels are available. Um, because it was emotional. It was not something that I came to lightly. I was aware of the pressure and the publicity that I don't crave, but that was gonna come with it. And potentially the impact politically having to decide is, you know, with the with time, with hindsight, will that have turned out to be the right thing for my opportunity to keep my seat, for my party to stay in government, uh, or will it be the wrong thing? And you, it, it's like I say, it was a very challenging time and, and emotional. And I remember I, just, I spoke to Nikita, my partner, I spoke to my family and that was it. And then it wasn't until the next day, I dared look at the phone properly. <sighs> masses of missed calls, WhatsApp messages. Obviously, the media are desperate for you to go and give mm. like an interview. I wasn't interested in any of that, just kept my head down. And But also then facing your colleagues, some of whom would have thought you were, you know, shoulder to shoulder with them, who now feel that you've betrayed them. So some friendships inevitably will get impacted. And others that probably judged you unfairly or thought you were a bit maybe, uh, you know, overly excitable. As I said, it's probably the plightest way I can put it on the pod. <laughs> but now suddenly looking at you in a different light. Well, and, Michael uh, said fearless. Fearless. So actually people coming up and, you know, people who I would say are not natural bedfellows with me in the parliamentary party, but coming up and saying, we don't agree on, on uh, you know, lots of things about the technicalities, but that's a big respect moment. That's a brave thing to do and fair play to you for doing it. So, yeah, it was dawn. I remember hi I hid in the library because <laughs> it's just quiet and there's not many people there mm. and just sort of that felt like a safe space and only members can be in there mm. so i wasn't going to suddenly bump into a member of the lobby i wasn't going to bump into lots of colleagues it just felt like a safe place to be for that day and i just remember like wanting to get to the end of that week and just get home and obviously then face the consequences of my own electorate and find out whether or not you know and it's, and it's difficult because in that moment it was a personal decision but it's the one thing on reflection is did i go oh how my all my constituents feel about this and it's probably something i didn't think about as much maybe because at the time yes i was technically on payroll and i just decided i can't continue to be part of this government at this stage i'd rather just be a backbencher and just now focus on purely my patch and purely my local issues and not dedicate any more time to the, you know, the inner dealings the inner workings of whitehall because i just didn't feel i had that same drive and passion and motivation because sadly I'd, I'd lost faith at that time in the leadership and direction that the government was going in. Mm. The episode we recorded earlier on with Alex and Mark was really interesting. That is very insightful and just to some of the tough decisions that you have to make. How hard is opposition? Opposition like, sounds hard. I mean, listening to David and now Alex, like to, like that is, it just sounds so challenging to have that no support, right? Basically, you're just, you're like stakeholders and policy advisors. You're really relying on getting excellent policy advisors and really good stakeholders to provide you that information. And like you say, when they're up against a civil service machine of thousands, tens of thousands of individuals, I just think clearly being in the opposition is hard work, which is probably explains why coming back is, is as hard as it is. Yeah. I mean, what, someone who worked for David Cameron said to me, when you're in opposition, your job is to oppose. The biggest challenge is to convert yourself. Alex said this is to look like a government in waiting 
and that is very very difficult because it because the the person was saying to me it's a actually it's a different mindset to start to appear like a government in waiting and i think one of the big challenges is you just don't have the resource so you've got a finite amount of resources but you've got to you know they alex and her front bench team have got to present to the public and they've got to look as professional as ready as as the conservative team but the conservative team have got thousands of civil servants and the, all the support that goes with it and and labor don't have that and i think this will be you know be will be interesting next year or two as we see if they're able to meet the challenge Well, again, thank you so much for tuning in and hopefully you look forward to our next episode next week. Please make sure that you, again, follow and subscribe. Make sure that you give us a rating and a review. And, of course, you can follow us and tell us what you think on Twitter at WhitehallPodUK. UK.